Welcome to the prolific teaching ministry of Pastor Emmanuel Iren, lead pastor of Celebration Church International. It is his vision to partner with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Ready, set, grow. The first thing I want to announce is this. You see, one of the things you must understand about standards is that they obey the law of gravity. They fall. And so if you would see a person who has standards maintained over the years, it's because he put up structures, all right, to make sure that um, they stood erect. And the same thing was applied to your prayer life. Um, your life of consecration. There are, there, there's what I call special seasons of de devotion. Um, and we're going to have a full month of that in the month of May. All right. So the theme for the month of May is like incense. I like incense. So it's a special month of worship, of consecration, of prayer. All right. Um, I want you to get ready for that. Sometime in the month, we're going to announce a fast. Sometimes in the month, we're going to announce everything that makes for consecration. Be ready for it. All right. We're going to take evangelism more seriously. We're going to take prayer, ministry. You know, um, we're going to have more live streams just to pray. Um, I want you to get ready for that. It's going to be such a powerful time listen you're going to see dramatic interventions dramatic all right so i want you to anticipate that and get ready for that all right um now we're going to go into the word and this is the grand finale of the teaching series for this month and I want you to pay attention, okay? This is a Bible study. We're taking Bible study format. I was telling Pastor T, you know, as we came here today, I was saying, I honestly just wanted to just share thoughts, but the Lord just kept moving my heart in this direction. So get ready for Bible study. So the theme is amazing grace. Amazing grace. All right. So essentially, we're talking about salvation which is what the Bible is about. You see, a lot of people have said that you can learn several things from the Bible. And I'm not even going to argue whether they are right or wrong. What I'm going to tell you is this. The Bible has aims and objectives. So as the Lord inspired the writing of the scriptures, there, was, there, there are things he wanted you to see. And so no matter what else you see, if you don't see what God wanted you to see, it's a waste of time. So you must understand the aims and objectives, what God has in store for you. It's so important. So one more time, we're talking about amazing grace. And the Bible is essentially about salvation, the promise of salvation, the fulfillment of that promise of salvation, and the announcement of that salvation. That's what the Bible is about. The promise of salvation the fulfillment of salvation, the announcement of salvation. So throughout the scriptures, what you call the Old Testament, you have the promise of salvation. God kept promising through the prophets that a Messiah was going to come. And um, 
in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have the fulfillment of that promise of salvation. All right. And then in the book of Acts and in the epistles, you have the announcement and the explanation of that salvation. And we want to run through that. You normally, because of the time, I shouldn't be doing this, because, but I know it's going to bless you. I'm just going to do this as scantily as possible, all right? Because this is, um, I, I, I shouldn't need more time for this. So I want to run through the Bible as briefly as I can, starting from the first promise of salvation. I've taught you this before. There is something theologians call protevangelion, which is spelled P R O T E V A N G E L. I-U-M, protevangelion. Protevangelion is Latin and it simply means the first glimpse of the gospel. So if the Old Testament is filled with promises of the gospel, promises of salvation, what was the first promise of salvation? It is found in Genesis 3.15. And like I said, theologians call this verse protevangelion, which is the first glimpse of the gospel. Background of the story. Um, Adam and Eve had just eaten of the fruit. And now God is letting them know the repercussions of their actions. And then he said in verse 15 of Genesis 3, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head and thou shall bruise his heel. Now, first and foremost, you have to understand this metaphorically before you understand this prophetically. When you, you picture the heel of someone on the head of another person, you know, when we say, uh, yep, pressing my neck, you know, this slang, you know, it, it's a picture of flexing, a demonstration of power, a demonstration of victory. So there will be enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will bruise your head. He's going to crush you. He's going to defeat you. But in the process, you will bruise his heel. So um, the, 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 the assault of the seed of the woman will be devastating, will be fatal. The serpent will be halted. But in that battle, or in that, yeah, let's call it battle for now, the seed of the woman will also be injured. So what do we see here? We see prophetically the victory of the seed of the woman, the victory of the Messiah being promised. But we see that it is going to be a painful victory. A painful victory. We see that, um, the seed of the woman will establish his kingdom through suffering. Paul said he was declared to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. It, it, was, a, it was the suffering that made the glory and the resurrection possible. And all of this was prophesied. So listen, now... From the protevangelion, from this text, all of humanity began to look for something. They were looking for a seed. That seed that will undo all the wrong things that the serpent had caused. That seed. Because 
Now they were looking for the seed of the woman. What seed would that be? A theologian named Dr. Bruce, which is very interesting because he was giving a commentary on the seed of the woman bruising the head. Oh my God. <laughs> of the serpent. You know, Dr. Bruce will something. <laughs> you know, he said that Eve actually thought Cain was going to be that seed. But don't forget, not only are we to trace the seed of the woman that will bruise the head of the serpent, we're also tracing the seed of the serpent. The woman will have children of promise. Serpents will have children of damnation. That's why Jesus could look at the Pharisees and say, you are of your father, the devil. So the, <laughs> he was the seed of the woman. They were the seed of the serpent. You have to understand this. She thought Cain was going to be the seed you know, that was promised from the name Cain. A child from God. He, that's that's why she named him. They named him that way. But he was the opposite. He was the seed of the serpent. And the seed, um, the lineage through which the, that seed was going to come ended up being Seth instead. And from Seth, we had Noah. And from Noah, we had Shem. And from Shem, we had Abraham. And God told Abraham, he says, in you, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So now we are tracing the lineage. Now we know that it will be through Abraham. Listen, this is the preoccupation of the Bible. Whatever else you miss, you read in the Old Testament. If you forget the flow of thought, if you forget that we are actually tracing a lineage, you have missed everything. There are many interesting distractions. There are many things that if you read, they can help you in your daily life. They are good, but they are not the main thing. The Old Testament is about the promise. You are tracing the lineage through which the seed was going to manifest. All right. So Abraham, he says, in thee shall all the nations of the blessed be, the earth be blessed. So we are tracing. And God tells Abraham, it will not be Ishmael. It will be Isaac. And Isaac has two children, Jacob and Esau. And it's not Esau, it's Jacob. So we are tracing. Jacob has 12 sons. Guess what? It's not Joseph. It's Judah. I, I, I'm going to take time to explain. We have Manifest Bible course next month. Hi, Get ready for that. I'm going to explain all these things um, better. And you know what God said about Judah? I wish I had more time for this. This is good stuff. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. I want you to see the prophecy about Judah. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, that's the prophetic selection. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between thy feet. It says, until Shiloh come. It says, unto him shall the gathering of the people be. So now, one of the earliest names for the Messiah was actually Shiloh. Shiloh was not a place, even though there was a place called Shiloh later. But that place did not exist at this time. You know what Shiloh means? It means the man of rest. The man of Sabbath. He says, and he said, unto him, Unto Shiloh shall the gathering of the people be. And Shiloh will be of the descendant of Judah. So we are tracing the seed here. 
Oh, I wish I had more time for that. And then from the lineage of Judah, you have David. And one day, God gives David a promise. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 25, follow the line of thought. So God tells Judah, the scepter shall not depart from you. And what does he tell David? He says, therefore now, 1 Kings 8, 25, Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servants, David, my father, thou, that thou promised him, saying, there shall not fail thee a man in sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that thy children shall take heed to thy way and walk before me as thou hast walked. So anyways, this was the promise that God gave to David. He says, they shall not fail. They shall not fail thee a man to sit on the throne of Israel. Meaning, oh my goodness, pay attention to this. God told David in essence, don't mind King James language, it makes it sound difficult, it's very simple. David is on the throne. Just imagine David is an APC gov governor, God forbid. <laughs> and God tells David, your party will forever be in office. And remember I said God forbid, all right? <laughs> you know, but essentially, he says, you will keep passing it to your children, and your children's children, do you understand? So that was the promise. Now, if you look at this promise from a social political standpoint, it looks like it was not fulfilled. Why would God tell David? Because you know Solomon, Solomon scattered everything. <laughs> you know, it looked like somewhere along the line that didn't happen. So, did God's promise fail? But he didn't. One day a virgin named Mary was minding her business and all of a sudden an angel showed up and gave her a salutation that got her perplexed and wondering what manner of salutation is this. The Bible says in Luke chapter 1 verse 30, the Bible says, And the angel said to her, Fear not, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you shall conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord shall give unto him, oh, Matapraq, the fatish. And the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. So when God was saying that the scepter or there will never be, there will never fail to be someone from your lineage sitting on the throne. He wasn't saying your, your son will pass over to the next person and that person will pass over to the next person. That's not what he was saying. He's saying someone from your lineage will come and will rule with an endless life. And because he's king, his tenure will never end. So that was the prophecy of the Christ. Remember again, we are tracing the lineage. We are tracing the story. Paul was preaching and he used the same um, explanation in Acts chapter 13 verse 34. Acts chapter 13 verse 34. The Bible says, And as concerning that he raised him from the dead, talking about Jesus, 
Now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure message of David. Meaning what I promised David in my mercy will be sure in your life. Meaning it will be fulfilled. So that was a fulfillment. I wish I had more time to break that down to you. But now I said all of that to say this. You know, I remember as a child, um, I tried to read through the Bible. And it was so difficult. There were just some books that didn't make sense. I tried to avoid Leviticus and everything that had curse in it, you know. But, but even the Gospels that seemed more interesting, I mean, there are stories there, you know, the virgin birth and all of that. You're reading Matthew and it starts with genealogy. Is it just me that never understood what you, you think what is the purpose of this? Why so boring? Why do you even bother to tell us a story that we're not interested in? But listen, as you mature, you discover that the genealogy is one of the most important pieces in the gospel. Because here is the thing. In fact, I like the fact that Matthew started with the genealogy. There is no better way to start. Because before you start a conversation about who the Messiah is, to people who understand prophecy, you must first justify the lineage of that person as someone who came through Judah, as someone who came through Abraham, as someone who came through David. Those three cardinal people, if he did not come through that lineage, because guess what? Don't forget how we started. From the protevangelion, from Genesis 3.15, we are tracing the lineage. We are tracing, we're looking for someone. And we receive hints, prophetic hints from place to place, from time to time, pointing us to that person. That's why the genealogy is so important. That's why Luke gave genealogy and Matthew gave genealogy. It's a principle of journalism. See, if we tell seven people to tell us a story of something that happened in the market, there are some details that each of them will miss. But the most important details, all of them will tell. So if Luke wanted to tell the story all right, about the provision of salvation and he gave the genealogy and Matthew did the same thing. It must be important. And I tell you, it is very important. All right. The genealogy guides our priority. It helps us. Don't lose focus. There are many things to learn in the Bible, but there is one important thing. Many things you might learn from the story of Esau, but Jacob is the focus. Many things you will learn from the story of David. You know, I've said this time and again, that as children, every time you're reading the story of David, what will stand out to you is that he killed Goliath. But the priority of the Bible is different. David, every time the New Testament spoke about David, they did not mention Goliath once. The writings of David were quoted 60 times in the New Testament. And the story of, the, of his killing Goliath did not show up there. Guess what? Solomon was not quoted at all. Despite all his wisdom, people say he was the wisest man. His wisdom did not find relevance in the New Testament. You have to understand the kind of wisdom we are talking about and the kind of wisdom that counts before God. This is so important. So don't lose focus. 
Of all the things that were said about David, what was important? See, let me tell you this. And I, ju I just want to say this with all sense of humility. Some of, some, some of you don't even know what spiritual growth is. You don't know. A baby doesn't know what is good for him. Doesn't know what is good for her. Sometimes you want to vaccinate the baby. You want to give the baby injections and the baby will cry as if, why do you hate me? You want to send the child to school and you will cry as if, why do you hate me? It's part of the perks of growing up. You don't know what you need. And so growing up spiritually, you don't even know what you need. Many church people don't know a good sermon. So you hear David and Goliath, all those things, they're nice. They encourage you. Some even say, ah, I read some things that help me in my business. But there is a focus. We, are looking for a, we were looking for a seed. So you must follow the line of thoughts. For instance, on Sunday, you learned to see Christ in Isaiah 53. Do you know how important that is? That now, every time you read Isaiah 53, you understand what it means. Now, that's growth. And this is the type of growth you should see. So like I said, when you're reading the Old Testament, you have to understand what the focus was. You know what Jesus said in John 5, 39? He says, set the scriptures. In them, you think they have eternal, you think you have eternal life. It says, they are they that testify of me. In the scriptures, it is a testimony about me. Meaning, if you read the Old Testament, you will see a lot of details, a lot of information about me. By the way, when he was talking in John chapter 5, the New Testament had not been written, had not been compiled. So when he says, they testify of me. He was talking about Genesis to Malachi. So I should be able to see that seed of the serpent. All I mean, see, follow the train of prof prophecy. Follow the breadcrumbs. And piece all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together to find Christ. That's what good Bible study does. So let's see how Paul preached. I want to see an ex show you an example. In Acts chapter 13, this is going to bore you, but that's good. Acts chapter 13. The Bible says from verse 15, it says, After the reading of the law and the prophets, which is the Old Testament, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word or exhortation for the people, say on. You know, we're going to have a day in church. We're going to do this. We just pass the mic. Who has an exhortation? The church would have been matured to a point. Maybe we would restrict it to workers, you know, or people who have gone to the membership school, attended church for a while. All right. Anyways, the Bible says, Stol uh, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand. He said, men of Israel, you who fear the God. He said, listen, it says, God of these people, Israel, chose our father and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. So he started from you know, the land of Egypt. He says, and uplifted, with an uplifted hand, hand, he brought them out. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness and destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan. He distributed their land to them by allotment. 
After that, he gave them judges. So see what Paul is doing. He's doing a commentary of the Old Testament. He started from Exodus. And he's coming to Jesus. This is how we should understand the Old Testament. Don't get lost in the stories. See everything as they lead to Christ. Stephen did the same thing too in Acts chapter 7. That's how Stephen preached. So you must see all those stories pointing to one person. Verse 21, afterward they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David as king, to whom he gave testimony saying, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, to do all my will. For from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. You see? After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, he that comes after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to lose. Uh, that's why I wear sandals these days. Men of God ought to wear sandals. I'm just playing. It says men and I'm just joking. It says men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham. And those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. It says, for those who dwell in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not know him, nor the voices of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. It says, now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Glory to God. It says, he was seen for many days by those who came up from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you, glad tidings, that the promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children. In that he raised up Jesus. Now pay attention. He's quoting scripture now. As it is also written in the second Psalm. Meaning Psalm chapter 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I'm teaching you how to understand the Old Testament. Now when you're reading Psalm chapter 2. You might not have known. That it was talking about the Messiah. But see. The New Testament is actually a commentary of the Old Testament. So from this, you say, oh, so Psalm chapter 2 was talking about Jesus. I did not know. The second Psalm, he says, you, you, you are my son. Today I have, have I begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus. This is another Psalm again. I will give you the sure message of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, third psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. That's from Psalm chapter 16. So now, I, I, I just read this so that you could see how Paul used the psalms to preach Christ. Because a lot of psalms, they are called messianic psalms. A lot of Psalms actually foretold Christ and what he will do. And I want to go through some of them with you. 
And so from all this, from all these Psalms, this is his conclusion. Verse 38, he says, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who, who believes is justified from all things which they could not be justified by the law of Moses. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. This is so powerful. So let us go through some Psalms now. This is going to stir you up and bless you. Ah. Now let's talk about the Psalm chapter 2 from verse 1, you know, that was being spoken of here. In Psalm chapter 2 from verse 1, it says, why do, the why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. You know what he was doing? He was anticipating the fact that they will plot against Christ. This was a prophecy that they will plot to kill him. So it wasn't a surprise to God. Hundreds of years before, it was anticipated, it was prophesied, it was written. No wonder Jesus said, search the scriptures. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? No wonder Jesus was so composed before Pilate. Ah, yeah, yeah. Oh, glory to God. Because, because he already knew the counsel of God. He knew what God had said about this. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? It says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers to take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. By the, by the way, the word Messiah, if you check the etymology of the word, it actually means someone that is robbed. It actually means anointed. So this was a prophecy of the Messiah. Against the anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast them, cast away their cords from us. So um, uh, the, the high priests and all the Pharisees and Sadducees saw a growing movement that they wanted to stop. Let us, I mean, this group, let's scatter them. And how do we scatter them? Let's kill their leader. That's what they thought they were going to do. All this is anticipated. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. It says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. <laughs> it says, the Lord shall hold them in derision. Meaning, uh, they're going to be so clueless. No wonder Paul said to Corinth, he said, if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He says, then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in a deep displeasure. He says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will decree, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> Today have I begotten you. Now, do you remember Paul's commentary on this? Go back to Acts chapter 13, verse 33, so that you will understand what is happening there. Acts 13, 33. Acts 13, 33 says, God has fulfilled this to us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today have I begotten you. So this particular, by begotten, he's talking about resurrection from the dead. Pay attention. So when you understand this, you will understand what Psalm 2 is saying. He's not saying he that is sitting in the heaven will laugh 
and prevent the execution. He's saying he will laugh because he has a plan of resurrection. And that, that's what he's saying here. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. So resurrection was the plan. So when they were planning in verse 3 of Psalm 2, they said, let us break their bonds in pieces, cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heaven shall laugh. I will hold them in derision. And then he says, you are my son. Today have I begotten you. So even if they kill the anointed, he will raise him up. That was the plan. And now, the conversation changes after the resurrection of the anointed. In verse 8, he says, ask of me. And I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. The resurrection has made this possible. The Bible says God also has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. That at the name Jesus, every knee should bow. It says of things in heaven, of things in the earth, of things beneath the earth. That's what he's saying here. Ask of me. I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. He says, you shall break them with the rod of iron, dash them to pieces like the potter's vessels. Now, oh, Pate Ferretige says, it gets very interesting. He says, now, therefore, this is a scanty commentary, by the way. Be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing. Verse 12 I know I can hear those of you online, but let everybody in the studio read with me. Verse 12, want to, get, want to go. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is, is kindled, but a little blessed are those who put their trust in him. This is so powerful. This is a powerful prophecy. It says, kiss the son, or the father will be angry. By the way, kiss is not literal. Kiss was a way to show honor. Kiss was a way to show that you believe in the reign of a king. So uh, in those days, those kings would stretch out their hands like this. And they have a signet ring, a, a demonstration of their authority. And then you hold it and you kiss it. And that was um, to show that you believe in the authority of their kingdom, of their kingship. So he's saying, God has ordained Christ to be king. Let all the nations come to him. Pay willful allegiance. He says, otherwise, the father will be angry. And this explains salvation versus the wrath of God. The only way to escape the wrath of God in salvation is allegiance to the Son. For there is no other name given under heaven by which men should be saved but by the name of Jesus. That's what he's saying. Hallelujah. So many remarkable prophecies. I mean, just look at Psalm chapter 22. Verse 1 is so familiar. You can't miss it. Psalm 22 verse 1. Verse 1 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Why are you far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Verse 16, it says, for dogs 
have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now, this, this figure of speech, dogs, was also used by Paul in Philippians 3 from verse 1 where he says, beware of dogs. I think verse 2, beware of dogs. He was referring to the Jews. And so this was a prophecy that the Jews were going to execute him. He says, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. This was a direct, almost so clear prophecy of the crucifixion. They pierced my hands and feet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. Oh, glory to God. Listen, it was a prophecy that Jesus' bones will not be broken. Let me tell you this. Um, in the crucifixion, after a while, because, um, I mean, the, uh, there, there is this shock effect that people on the cross would always have after their blood has been drained and all of that, and it's a gory sight. So after a while, the Roman soldiers were known to come to all the people on the cross, crush their bones so that they die faster to avoid, you know, that gory sight. But after a while, after all the demands of justice had been met, the Bible says Jesus gave up the ghosts. So they crushed the bones of the, the guys beside Jesus, but by the time they came to Jesus, he was already dead. So there was no need to crush his bones. And that was a fulfillment of this. I count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments amongst them. And my clothing, they, from, for my clothing, they cast lots. <laughs> but you, O oh Lord, do not be far from me. O oh, my strength, hasten to help me. So this, this is just a direct prophecy. No wonder Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1 from verse 18 to 19. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. It says, for as much as you know that you were not... Okay, no, I'm, I'm going to come. I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, so that's powerful. Psalm 22, another Messianic Psalm, all right? Now, let's come to Psalm chapter 16, verse 10. Before I read it to you, let me show you how Peter taught from that Psalm. The Bible says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were in the upper room, you know, Praying, and then suddenly there was a sound of a rushing mighty wind and filled the room where they were. And then the people started, got filled with the Spirit and started praying in tongues. And then there were cloven tongues as of fire that sat on the head of everyone. And people that heard them from outside thought, who are these drunkards? So Peter saw need to give a defense and to explain what was happening. And he rose up and he said, men and brethren, uh, we couldn't be drunk. This is just the third hour. What you see is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see vision. Your old men, old men shall dream dreams. This is Acts chapter 2 from verse 14. I'm in verse 17 now. You know. And then he began to explain salvation in Christ. 
from verse 22. He says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God amongst you by many miracles and signs and wonders which God did by him in the midst of you. As you yourself know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified him slain and slain. He says, whom God has raised up and loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holding by it. Verse 25, for David speaking concerning him, or David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He's on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore, my heart re will rejoice and my tongue shall be glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. Now, let's see what text he was quoting. Go quickly. We're going to come back to see his commentary on that. But go now to Psalm chapter 16 from verse 10. Psalm chapter 16 from verse 10. Let's read from verse 8. It says, I have set the Lord always before me. Psalm 16 verse 8. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my glory rejoiced. My flesh also shall rest in hope. Meaning, even if I die, I have hope. My flesh shall rest in hope. Peter clearly says, David was prophesying about Christ. He says, for thou will not leave my soul in the grave. Neither will you suffer your Holy One to see decay. The Hebrew word actually means decay. My body is not going to be, I mean, before it even starts um, decaying, there's going to be a resurrection. <laughs> the body will be changed. He says, thou will show me the path of life. <laughs> In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Right hand, metaphor for resurrection. Metaphor for the fulfillment of the redemptive plan because Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. So this was a prophecy of his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension at thy right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. Right hand, just metaphor for new creation realities. Pleasures forevermore. So how did Peter explain this? Go back to Acts chapter 2. Glory to God. In verse 28, Acts 2, 28, it says, Thou hast made unto me the path of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy at thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of, pit, of the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried. And his sepulchre is still with us to this day. You know what he's saying? That means he was not talking about himself. If his sepulchre is still with us, he was not talking about himself. He says, therefore, being a prophet. <laughs> you know, many people, when they tell the story of David, they say, ah, he was a musician. <laughs> when they tell the story of David, ah, he was a great soldier. He killed Goliath. When they tell the story of David, they say, ah, he married many wives. Or he was a king. 
He was a shepherd boy. But listen, the most important thing is the aspect of David that was relevant to the fulfillment of prophecy. He was a prophet. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of his leons, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. I've explained this already. Haven't I? Raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul will not be left in hell, Hades, neither will his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, therefore, God raised up whereof we are all witnesses, therefore being at the right hand of God. This is his explanation of at thy right hand. Therefore being at the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, the, that's the pleasure. That's the pleasure David was waiting for at the right hand. The promise of the Holy Spirit. He had shed forth this which you now see and hear. He says, for David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit down at my right hand until I make thy foes your footstool. Anyway, that's so powerful. I wish I could go on and on with this. But this just tells you how replete the Old Testament is with prophecies of the Christ. So we've done Psalm chapter 2. We've done Psalm chapter 22. We've done Psalm chapter 16, albeit scantily. Now I want to ask you a very important question as we talk about the grace of God. Think about the amount of effort it took for the promise, for the fulfillment. I mean, this is a 4,000-year-old plan. 4,000 years. God planned this for 4,000 years. 4,000 years. I mean, right from the first man, after the fall. Don't forget where we started. From the protevangelion, we see the unfolding of the plan till it got to us. So one question you must ask yourself is, did God make a mistake? As we talk about salvation, let me tell you this. When you look at the cross, you see two things. In this particular context, and there are many th things to see. You see the severity of God against sin. You know, we live in a culture that minimizes sin. We have many metaphors that we used to minimize sin. Oh, it was a mistake. It was a, you know, you know, and stuff like that. But when you see what it took for God to deal with sin, it took crushing his own begotten son. That's not a joke. His own son cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he bore your sins, God had to look away from his own son. It's no small thing. Listen, no one minimizes sin because of the understanding of grace. No one. How could you? 
How could you really understand the price that was paid and think of sin as a small thing? It's just the normal principle of commerce. The more the price that was used to get something, the greater the value of that thing. You protect it more. No one just um, leaves valuables worth millions outside. There must be some safety measures to make sure that it's, it's, it's safe. And that's just how it's meant to be. So by the price that was paid, you know that it's not a small thing. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 1 from verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 1 from verse 18. It says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversions received by the tradition of your fathers. You were not redeemed. Let me tell you this. I mean, if God paid one billion, one billion dollars for your salvation, it would be expensive, but it's still money. There are people who can afford it. If God paid in gold and silver, there are people who can afford it. But he says, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. He says, but with the precious blood of Christ. Think of the price that was paid. The precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spots. By the price, you understand, sin was really a big issue. So nobody, because of their understanding of grace, minimizes sin. But you know what no one else should do because of their understanding of grace? Don't minimize the sacrifice, the efficacy of the sacrifice. You mean to tell me God had a 4,000-year-old plan to redeem you? And then Christ comes. He dies. He rises. You place your faith in him for salvation. Then you tell a lie. As bad, lying is bad. It's a sin. No child of God should lie and feel happy or feel all right. It should pierce your heart. But there's a difference between, or the question is, why? Why do you feel bad? Do you feel bad because you are a new man in Christ and you should not be lying? Or be, because you feel, because of that, you're not going to make heaven? So God's great plan, he planned it for 4,000 years. I mean, he sent prophets to be given hints of it. He sent his own son, crushed his own son, died, rose up three days. And then one mistake, imagine maybe you served God 40 years. Went mission fields, did all those things. And then you know how the movies portray it. One mistake, as you were making that mistake, the trumpet now sounded, pam, 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 pam. And then you go to hell. And when we try to explain things like this, they think, some people think we are, we, are, we are minimizing sin. We are not minimizing sin. We are protecting you from minimizing the sacrifice. Listen, if Jesus died for sins, I don't get to pay for them. Simple commerce. Did he die for my sins or not? If he died for me, I will not die. 
For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let me tell you this. From an intellectual standpoint, I mean, if indeed, you know, some people's definition of salvation is this. You have to live a perfect life. So if you make mistake, you are no more a candidate for heaven. So you have to say sorry. And the reality is, Jesus didn't need to die for that. Jesus didn't need to die for that. We can, I, I mean, without Jesus coming, I can try to live a holy life. And when I make mistakes, I say sorry. But if God found a ransom, uh, look at the way First John 2 explained it as I begin to round off. First John chapter 2 from verse 1. It says, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. This is so important because some people, you know, when you're preaching this, they think you're encouraging sin. God forbid. And we have myriads of sermons talking about exercising your victory over sin and all of that. My little children, I write unto you that you sin not. He says, and if any man sin. So this is not an encouragement to sin. You shouldn't. But if you do, you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for your sins. So you shouldn't sin. But if you sin, someone paid. He's the propitiation for your sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the world. It's so straightforward. And because you have the Holy Spirit, the knowledge that you are saved is no longer about your works, will not move you to sin more. It moves you, you know how Paul put it? He says, in view of the mercies of God, let us present our bodies a living sacrifice. So the understanding of grace, understanding of the mercy of God does not make us lascivious. Instead, it drives us more into consecration because we see the magnitude of the sacrifice and we respond and we say, how can we not give him our lives? If he gave us his life, how can we not give him our life also? We will take our cross and follow him. Deny ourselves and preach it from the mountaintop, announcing to the world what he has done. That's our response. Our response is not to say, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, no, God forbid. How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer daring? But the reality of the situation is, Paul said, where sin did abound. Grace much more about. That's what the Bible says. So the final text of the day and we pray. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 from verse 1. Romans chapter 4 from verse 1. It says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh had found? If Abraham were justified by works, then he can boast, but not before God. For what's yet the scripture? Abraham believed God, 
and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He says, now to him that walks is the reward not reckoned of grace but of death. Listen, you have to understand, if we say salvation is by grace, you need to know what we are saying. He says, if you walk, it is not grace. If you walk, it's death. So if you have an employment contract, and I say after every 30 days, I'm going to give you this amount of money. If you walk, that's not grace. You deserve the money. But if you come visiting just to visit and I extend you that money, you didn't work for it now, that's grace. So he said, if you walk, it is not grace, it is death. Understand it. If you think you have to do anything to make heaven, you might mean well. And your motives superficially are good because moral excellence is good. But walking to make heaven is out of debt. You are minimizing the necessity of the sacrifice of Christ without knowing. You might have good intentions for doing so, but that's what you're doing. So why do we strive for moral excellence? Because we are saved, not to be saved. Because we are citizens of heaven, not to make heaven. He says, now to him that walks is not the reward reckoned of grace but of death. But to him that walks not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly. You know, this, this text is so raw, people avoid it. What do you mean? God justifies who? But that's who we are. We don't always get it right, but we are the justified of God. Listen. Because someone died my death. I wish I had enough time to teach you on the doctrine of justification. The Bible says that he, had he has raised up Christ for our justification. So as surely as Christ is risen, we are justified. Because Christ is alive, all who place their faith in him are justified. It's about the resurrection. It says, he that walks not, but believes on he that justifies the ungodly. It says his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness without works. Saying, blessed is a day whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And why would God not impute sin? Because someone paid for the, the sins. He can't impute it. He's been paid. The account is balanced. He says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. It says, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Meaning that promise of David is fulfilled in the man in Christ. Just thank him right now. Thank him. We have received the liberty to serve the living God. Our liberty is for service, for consecration, not to sin. But just worship him right now. Worship him right now. Worship him right now. Thank you, Jesus. Pray in the
the spirit and worship him right now. Thank him for the blood. Thank him for the cross. Eternal life. Eternal life. I have received eternal life. God saved my soul. I have received eternal life. God saved my soul. Paul said, Been confident of this very thing. That he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Glory to your name, Lord. Glory to your name, Lord. Listen, everyone under the sound of my voice. Everything that Christ offers is by grace. Don't let the devil deceive you that you're sick and you don't deserve a healing. You deserve it. It is for you that Christ died. And that's why you can be healed right now. And so I stretch my hands to you and I prophesy. Let everyone who is sick under the sound of my voice, in the name of Jesus whom we preach, in Jesus name be healed in your blood be healed in your bones let bad organs be replaced I'm seeing dead organs come alive there will be medically confirmed testimonies palibora ataravi zikida parandon de katos Thank you for listening. We are sure that you have been blessed. For inquiries, reach us on our helpline 0809-996-7000. Blessings.